following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Please take your Bibles and open them up with me to the book of Psalms. And let's go to Psalm 2 this morning. Psalm 2. I think it's safe to say that the book of Psalms is probably the most read book in all the Bible. Even in the case of those who are unfamiliar with the Bible, the book of Psalms is that one book that they happen to be familiar with. After all, we find in the book of Psalms, Psalm 23, which is arguably the most well-known of all the Psalms. It's a favorite to so many people, both believers and, yes, unbelievers. It speaks of God as the shepherd of his people who delivers his people, who satisfies his people, who guides his people, who protects his people, who provides for them. In times of sadness and sorrow, many will go to the book of Psalms for comfort. In times of fear and anxiety, many will turn to the book of Psalms to cope and to find help and hope to try to calm those fears and calm those anxieties. In the book of Psalms, we come face to face with a God who defends his people who delivers his people, who delights in his people, a God who is jealous for his people. But you see, that's the key to who is actually entitled to derive comfort from the promises that are found in the book of Psalms. Many have made the grave mistake of thinking that they can live for themselves, live for this world And live however they want and still turn to the book of Psalms in times of trouble or sadness and expect God to be a shepherd to them. They make the mistake of thinking that God is the shepherd of everyone, no matter how they live their lives. Well, they're correct in thinking that the book of Psalms is a hospital for the sick. They're correct in thinking that this book of Psalms is a refuge for weary travelers, a feast For the hungry and a lighthouse for those who are lost in darkness. But they are wrong in thinking that everyone, regardless of how they live and where they stand in relationship to Jesus Christ, has immediate access to God. They are wrong in thinking that God regards all of humanity as the flock that he guides and protects and delights in and provides for. The book of Psalms is indeed a treasure house filled with glory and hope and the riches of grace and forgiveness and blessing. But like any building, the book of Psalms has an entrance. And in this particular entrance is a gate. 
And standing before this gate into the book of Psalms are two divinely appointed gatekeepers. Who are they? Or better, what, better yet, what are they? They are Psalms 1 and 2. Whenever anyone approaches the book of Psalms, they are confronted with, first of all, Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 invites us into the treasure house of the book of Psalms, but only on the grounds that we turn our backs on the world and the wickedness of this world to find delight in God and to submit to his word as our highest authority. If not, we will find ourselves like the leftover chaff after a grain harvest that is driven away by a gust of wind. And as Psalm 1 says at the very end, the wicked will be driven away and unable to stand on the great day of judgment. That's the first gatekeeper into the book of Psalms, Psalm 1. And then, if we are granted access into the book of Psalms by this first gatekeeper, we come to gatekeeper number 2, Psalm 2. Like Psalm 1, Psalm 2 invites us into the treasure house of the book of Psalms, but only on the basis that we bow, not only our knees, but our wills, our hearts, and the totality of our lives, not just before the word of God, as in Psalm 1, but before the Son of God, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords, Jesus Christ. If anyone is to be granted access into the treasury of the book of Psalms, to find rest and redemption and reassurance of everlasting glory, they must bow before the authority of God's word, Psalm 1, and the supremacy of God's Son, Psalm 2. If we come to the book of Psalms, apart from a saving attachment to Jesus Christ, and if we come to the book of Psalms with a without a humble posture before Jesus Christ, we are nothing but desperate beggars who are merely window shopping and gazing at all the riches and all the treasures, all the delights and delicacies in the book of Psalms as we stand outside freezing and starving in our spiritual poverty with only eternal hopelessness to look forward to in the end. If we do not come to the book of Psalms, hoping and trusting in God's word alone and submitted to God's son. We are merely window shoppers when we come to the book of Psalms. You might explore and you might peruse the pages of the book of Psalms and claim with Psalm 23 that the Lord is your shepherd. But if you are not savingly united to the Lord Jesus Christ by a living faith and an ongoing repentance, you might strive to lay hold of the promises in the book of Psalms, but all your striving will be striving after wind. So make no mistake about who can enter into and actually enjoy and apply the treasures that are found in this treasury of the book of Psalms. Only those who pass through Psalm 1 with hearts set on submitting to the authority of God's word and only those who pass through Psalm 2 with hearts set on submitting to the supremacy of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul said in the New Testament, all the promises of God in the book of Psalms and elsewhere in the Bible 
find their yes and amen in him. Christ is the only way to God. He is the only way to the Father. Christ is the only way to be saved. Faith in him is the only way of salvation. Dependence upon him is the only thing that can bring true, genuine rest to the soul. Apart from repentance toward God and apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing in this life to look forward to but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume everyone who finds himself or herself as an enemy of God on that last day. Christ alone can reconcile sinful wretches like us to a holy and righteous God. And so with that said, I want to read in your hearing Psalm 2. I want to introduce you, as it were, to this second gatekeeper who will either grant or deny your entrance, not just into the book of Psalms, but into the great and everlasting salvation that is celebrated in the book of Psalms. And so I invite you to listen to the words of the eternal living God, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Behold the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are given in this psalm a very sobering and yet accurate picture of the human race, of how humanity has operated ever since the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, turned their back upon God and found themselves banished from his glorious presence. We also have in this psalm several pictures of several times in history. Number one, this has immediate reference to King David's dynasty. David being the, one of the be- better kings of, of Israel, right? Many believe that this was a coronation psalm, that this psalm was read and sung uh, whenever a king would take the throne in Israel. So, in one sense, this has immediate reference to David's dynasty. 
in another sense, it refers to all of humanity at any given point in history. In other words, this is always true of humanity, regardless of where they're at in history. They have always rebelled against God. They have always sought to be free from his reign and his rule. But thirdly, this psalm points ahead to the greater David, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater descendant and offspring of David, as we'll see later on in Acts chapter 4. This has reference to him. This psalm also describes you who are hearing my voice, who have yet to be born again, who have yet to turn from the love of sin and your pursuit of sin, and who have yet to entrust and commit your life and all that you have and all that you are to God's divinely appointed king and judge of the earth, Jesus Christ. My hope is that God would help you to see your need for mercy today and that you would be given eyes to see what you need to see and call upon God for mercy. For those of us who have, by the grace of God, been humbled by his grace to receive his grace, this psalm also gives us confidence in the sovereign rule of God in the midst of all the chaos down here on earth. We're confronted with a God who, unlike the kings of the earth, who are holding councils and trying to make for world peace and trying to establish their rule and grow their governments, our God sits in the heavens immovable. Our God sits in the heavens and he reigns there with unrivaled sovereignty and nothing sways him, nothing moves him, nothing can remove him from his throne, nothing, no one can impeach him. All the hordes of hell can storm his throne all for nothing. He cannot be moved. He reigns. He is supreme. It's comforting for us down here in the midst of all the chaos, all the storms, all the nations raging against God. Psalm 2 sets before us four extremely important realities that must grip each and every one of us if we are to truly be saved. According to God's word and according to God's son who walked this earth about 2,000 years ago, human beings, apart from the saving grace and power of God and apart from a saving attachment to Jesus Christ, are not safe. Year 2020, year 2021, we're still feeling the effects of it. Those were the years of, quote, unquote, being safe. That's how we greeted people. Stay safe. Have you been safe? Have you been doing everything you can to be safe? The truth of the matter is that outside of Christ, we are not safe. We can take all the measures in the world to prevent illness and death and ensure ourselves and, and all these things, but if we are outside of the mercy of Jesus Christ... We are not safe. The only thing keeping us out of hell is the kindness of God's hand holding us up from falling down into that pit. Why are we not safe as a human race? Because we are born in sin. We are born enslaved to sin. We are born with a fascination for sin. We are born, and one of the first words that comes out of our mouths is, 
mine, mine, mine. And, and, and that, that might seem like a little thing, hearing that from a baby, but it speaks to the larger universal problem of sin, the sense of entitlement that we are the center and that everything is ours. We are born in sin, in love with sin, enslaved to sin, and will eventually be ruined by sin. We're born separated from God. We are born with a natural inclination towards sin and wickedness. Sin does not have to be taught to us. We sin in our thoughts. We sin in our words. We sin with our actions. We have a sin-infected heart on earth and equally horrifying, we have a sin-stained record in heaven. A bad record in heaven and a bad heart on earth. That's the tragedy of the human race. And God, because he is a holy God, is against us in our sin. And because he is good, he will punish us for our sin. Yes, he allows us to breathe and enjoy his world. But at the end of our journey, because he's good and because he's just and because he's fair, he will give us what we deserve. No more, no less. And what we deserve is eternal punishment, the endless outpouring of his righteous anger. And his holy angels will praise him for doing this, for ridding us from his good world. We who brought death and destruction and disorder to his good world will be dealt with. And all creation will praise him for dealing with us. He will finally and decisively banish sinners like us from his creation and confine us to a place of everlasting burning. That's what we deserve, and that's what Jesus came and taught us. And anyone who tells you differently is lying to you. But I'm here to tell you that in spite of what we deserve, God has provided something that we don't deserve, a way to be saved from the eternal outpouring of his righteous wrath. We're quick to complain about hell, but we're slow to give thanks for God's grace. Jesus didn't simply speak about the hell that we deserve, but he spoke about the love of God that we do not deserve. Love that has made a way for sinners to be saved from a hopeless eternity in hell. That's why God breathed out his word. And that's why Jesus breathed his last upon the cross. And that's why I'm here this morning, still breathing God's breath with an open Bible between you and I, reading that Bible to you because God has made a way for us to be saved. Well, as we look at Psalm 2, again, I mentioned there are four realities that we need to wrestle with and tr come to treasure if we are to be saved, we must come to grips with, first of all, the madness of sin. The madness of sin. And for that, I turn your attention to verses 1, 2, and 3. Psalm 2 is kind of like a movie scene. There's four scenes. We go from what's happening on earth and then in the next scene, or stanza, we go to what's happening in heaven. And then after that, what's on earth again? It's like a rotation from earth to heaven, from earth to heaven, from earth to heaven. 
Look at scene one, where we are confronted with the madness of sin. The psalmist begins with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? In fact, the word plot here is the same Hebrew word used in Psalm 1 to talk about the godly man meditating on God's law day and night. So in Psalm 1, you have God's people meditating upon God's word and how to walk with God and how to please God and deciphering how to effectively honor God. But in Psalm 2, we're confronted with God's enemies plotting about how to be free from God how to live more effectively for themselves. That's the word plot. It's the word meditate in Psalm 1. Why do the nations rage? You have a, you have a, the the word rage denotes a a commotion, the the, the noise of like a roaring sea of peoples. You've been in a crowd and and you can't hear, you know, distinct words, but you can hear a roar of of people just in commotion and, and, and a tumult. Why do the nations, it's not just one nation, it's all the nations, they're raging, raging, in commotion. And what are they doing? They're plotting, meditating, conspiring in their minds. But it says that they're doing so in vain, in vain, to no purpose. Verse 2 says, the kings of the earth, those who are rulers, those who reign on the earth, those who are over all the peoples of the earth. Notice what they do. They set themselves. They posture themselves. And the rulers take counsel together. Here's the key phrase. Against Yahweh. The kings of the earth set themselves against Yahweh. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh. That's why the word L-O-R-D is in capital letters. For those of you who don't have a legacy standard Bible, Lord is Yahweh, the God of the universe. We have a picture of the most powerful people on earth, representatives of humanity, posturing themselves, setting themselves as if they've formed a line for battle against the God of heaven. You see, that's exactly what sin is at its very heart. It is setting yourself against God. Sin is not just the breaking of a rule. It's not just the disobeying of a command. Sin at its very heart is you marching up to the battlefield and setting yourself against God because you want to be God. That's what sin is. It's taking counsel together with other sinners. Romans 1.32 says, sinners not only do the things that God hates, but they encourage others for doing in doing the things that God hates. Sin is setting yourself against God, opposing God, resisting God, denying God, defying God, dishonoring God. If you're here today and you are not in Christ, hold up the mirror and just look at your life. Look at yourself. 
one of the one of the one of the ways one of the things you you must do in order to be saved and to come to grips with your deepest need is first come to grips with who you are and you will find as you look at yourself you are against god you're against his word you're against his authority his authority that brings freedom and joy and blessedness and bliss and glory you're against him Sin makes people insane. That's why we're talking about the madness of sin. To resist the goodness of a God who has your greatest good in mind is mad. It's folly. It's insanity. Resisting the fountain that can bring you refreshment. Resisting the salvation that will deliver, can deliver you for all eternity. The kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth, against the Lord, and notice, and they're against his Mashiach, his anointed. The word denotes Messiah. His anointed one, saying, look at verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Hosea chapter 11 verse 4 talks about God leading his people with cords of love, leading them through life with bands of love, unwilling to let them go because he loves them. And he's leading them, guiding them, providing for them, leading them with cords, bonds, bands of love. And yet notice what sin does. Instead of recognizing that God's commands and the words he gives us are bands of love leading us away from sin, away from our destruction, and to eternal joy and hope, we see those bonds as not bonds of love, but bonds of oppression, bonds of bondage. Humanity is seen here in this vivid picture as longing to be free from God. They are saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let's, let's, let's shatter these fetters. Let's, let's get these cords away from us. Let, us. let us break free. We just want to be free from him. We want to be free from being under obligation to, to acknowledge him and to, 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 to worship him. There, there's, 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 there's so many other things to live for on this earth, humanity is saying. Again, we see the, at the very heart of sin is a people, a person, an individual setting himself, setting herself against God with the desire to be free from the obligation to serve him, the obligation to acknowledge his worth and worthiness, from an obligation to give thanks to him. Sin has made us mad in our attempts to be free from God. That's the picture the psalmist paints for us as he's led by God to pen these words. Now, the original context, of course, referred to those nations and those people surrounding Israel who were bent on destroying Israel and resisting God's king, whether it be Saul, David, Solomon, whoever it was. And these kings were referred to God's anointed one in, the, in that day. You know, you read in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, how Saul, the very first king in Israel, 
was anointed with oil. And Samuel kissed him. And that was his way of pledging his allegiance, his loyalty to Saul. That's how the ancient kings were referred to, God's anointed ones. Whenever a king was anointed with oil, having you know, oil poured on his head, it was a symbol of God's spirit coming upon that king to empower him to lead and protect God's people. He was God's anointed king. And then you have David anointed after Saul. But ultimately, if we keep reading the biblical story, we find that the Lord's anointed one is that last and final king over God's people, empowered to lead God's people, empowered to save God's people, the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And so we see this psalm reach its ultimate fulfillment in him. So while King David wrote these words, little did he realize that he wasn't just writing about the madness of his day, but humanity's madness at large, a madness that would reach its apex, its ugliest point in the murder of God's own son. And for that, I point you to Acts chapter 4. Let's go to Acts chapter 4, New Testament book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. Luke here in the book of Acts is recording the rapid spread of the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of Jesus Christ. The church is meeting resistance, meeting hot opposition and resistance. And in Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John are warned to stop preaching, threatened to stop preaching, They are eventually released. They go to the church, verse 23, report all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when the church heard it, verse 24, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And notice how they apply it, really how the Holy Spirit applies it to Christ. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So we see that Psalm 2 reaches its ultimate fulfillment in the crucifixion and murder of God's own son. That's when it reached its ugliest point. This passage in Psalm 2 describes in very clear language why the world is in darkness and why it's seemingly in a hopeless state 
It's because mankind is at war with God. Why do the nations rage? Why are the nations in rebellion? Why the uproar? Why the restlessness? Like a restless sea? That's the question of the Bible for this sinful world of ours. Why? Why such restlessness? Why such anger against God? It doesn't have to be this way. Why do the people's plot in vain? Or more accurately, why do the people's plot and growl and devise a vain thing? Do you see the madness of sin here portrayed in these three verses? These are questions of astonishment. Why do the nations rage? Why are you in opposition? Why do you set yourself against God? The fountain of life, the fountain of joy, the fountain of all glory and goodness. Why? Sin is raging against God, a raging that, first of all, begins in the human heart and then expresses itself in a person's behavior. Sin is rebellion against God. It's a desire to overthrow his reign and his rule and to set itself upon the throne of the universe. Verse 2 says, The kings of the earth, who are nothing more than representatives of their people, they set themselves against Yahweh. Please come to grips with that. That sin is a setting of oneself against God, his reign, his rule, his will, his word, his right to glorify himself and his right to govern your life. That's what sin is. It's taking your stand against the living God, positioning yourself against him. But what I want you to see in all of this is it's all in vain. So much energy is devoted to setting yourself against God. So much in this world empowers you, strengthens your hands for sin, but all in vain. All in vain. Commercials designed to help you to sin better, to be more distracted, uh, uh, so you don't have to think about eternity. But it's all in vain. Notice how much of your life is devoted to trying to to, to refine the practice of sin, to get better at hiding sin, to get better at becoming a better sinner. But it's all in vain. It's all futile. It's all pointless. Setting yourself against him is pointless. It's madness and insanity to position yourself and to take your stand against the God of glory, the God of life, the God of light, the God of peace, the God of joy, the God of supreme blessedness. Resisting God is infinitely worse than a mother who is holding her baby on the top of a burning building, screaming at the firefighters to stop blasting the building with water because she enjoys feeling the flames and the warmth upon her skin. We would call her insane. We would call her mad. And yet some of you hearing my voice today are trying to do everything in your power to oppose the will and plan of a good, merciful God who sent his son to save sinners like you from unquenchable fire. Consider your madness this morning. Opposing the God who offers you new life, who offers you forgiveness, who offers you freedom, who offers you an eternal inheritance and blessedness in his presence. You should not want to break his bonds away from you. You should not want to cast away his cords of love. You should not want to shake yourself free 
You should not want to have a conscience that is okay with rebellion against him. If you're outside of Christ today and if you're honest, you may not say these words audibly, but you say these things with your life. You are desiring to be free from him. And I ask you this morning, why would you want to be free from the God in whose presence is fullness of joy? Why? The Bible commands you today to turn from your folly, to turn from your madness, to turn from your insanity, and to come to him. If you are to be saved, if I'm to be saved, we must first come to grips with the madness of our sin and the futility of resisting God and trying to rid him from our lives. The New Testament parallel of this first stanza is really Romans chapter 1, where man is described as doing everything in his power to suppress and drown out the truth of the reality of the existence of God that permeates all of creation. His fingerprints are everywhere, and yet man is doing everything he can to shut his eyes to it, to close his ears to it, to shut off his heart to it, close off his heart to it. God is giving us a very clear picture of the madness of sin so that we can turn from it and seek to be rid of it instead of turning from God and seeking to be rid of God. There was a madman during the French Revolution who ascended the Cathedral of Notre Dame to tear down the cross from the top of the, the, the cathedral, to dash that cross to pieces. And as he turned to a poor peasant, the man boasted, we are going to pull down all that reminds you of God. But someone from the crowd said, then you might as well pull down all the stars themselves. And yet, such are the arrogant, futile attempts of sinners unrepentant sinners to oppose God and to overthrow his authority. There's nothing you can do. There's nowhere you can go to break free from the reality of God's reign and God's glory. And so you are commanded to repent of your folly, repent of your madness and turn to him and you will find in him to be a gracious. You will find him to be gracious. You will find him to be merciful. You will find him that in spite of all your rebellion, he's willing to say you're forgiven completely. I've put all your sin upon my son and he paid for it in full. Secondly, if we are to be saved, friends, we must come to grips not only with the madness of sin, but with the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. What I mean by that is that you and I must come to grips with the reality that God rules and reigns over everything and nothing can overthrow his reign. Notice God's response to man's rebellion, both in David's day and in our day. Look at verses four through six. Now we go from the scene on earth and we go to the scene in heaven. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There seems to be some word, word play here. You have the kings of the earth setting themselves against God, ready for battle. God is in heaven 
setting his king on Zion. That's God's response. The king being installed on Mount Zion. But first, notice the response of God to humanity's raging. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Imagine you as a parent going home this afternoon. Let's say you have little kids. And you go outside their room and you can hear your youngest one whispering to his siblings. And when mom and dad go to sleep tonight, we're going to pour gasoline all over the house. And we're going to tie them up. And and then we're going to do this. And then we're going to take the keys to the car. And then we're going to drive away. And and, and, and it just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. They're, They're devising a plan to overthrow your rule and authority in the house. What would your immediate response be? It would be laughter. Why, uh, why laughter? Because it's ridiculous. It's, it's almost cute, but it's not. I can assure you that God does not regard humanity's rebellion as cute in any way. The reason he laughs is, is how pathetic we are down here. How ridiculous it is. In fact, the word derision, it means to mock. It means to scoff. It means to ridicule. The word ridicule, what do you hear in that word? What other word do you hear in the word ridicule? Ridiculous. We are demanding our rights down here on earth. We are seeking to overthrow God's good creative design and his order. We are seeking to define what really a, what a man really is and what a woman really is and who can really have a baby and who should really be pregnant. We're, we're going against the design of the God of the universe and God sees it as utter ridiculousness. It's ridiculous. But it's not just the people on the far left that God regards as ridiculous. It's people in the conservative right who think that they themselves are still the God of their own universe. It's everyone apart from conversion. It's everyone apart from the new birth. Everyone who is desiring to be free from him is viewed in light of a holy heaven as utter ridiculous, completely ridiculous. The Lord notices what he is doing. He is not just laughing in heaven. He is sitting. He is sitting. We turn to the book of Revelation. We see the great white throne and one who is seated on it. John, in Revelation chapter 4, when he's taken up into heaven, he's seen the, the, the glimpse of the throne room. There's one seated on it. He is not pacing the throne room. He is not wringing his hands trying to figure out what to do. He is sitting in immovable sovereignty unshakable confidence. He is sitting. There's peace. There's overflowing joy. He knows that nothing can remove him from his throne. And we know that nothing can remove him from his throne. Friends, that's food for the soul, by the way. No matter what you're going through today, you might be pacing back and forth at night 
Your mind might be racing. I want you to know that if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a God with infinite power, unlimited resources, unlimited blessedness and blessing and help and resources who is seated on the throne. And he's there for you to offer grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. The Lord here is sitting in heaven laughing at the ridiculousness of humanity's rebellion. The Lord, it says, holds them in derision. He regards them as ridiculous. Verse 5 says that after the laughter, he responds with wrath. And we saw that last week in Romans chapter 1. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying... Now, I want you to understand this because we tend to think of God's wrath and his fury as an uncontrollable child. He's got his toys taken away from him and he's red and he's storming and he's kicking everything around the house trying trying to get what he wants. We tend to think of God's wrath as that kind of wrath, but notice his wrath is settled. It's almost like there's a calmness to his wrath. He knows knows he'll accomplish his will. He knows he'll execute vengeance on his enemies. He's not losing sleep over how he's going to do it. His wrath is a settled conviction, a settled resolve to overthrow sin in in every form it's found. As for me, God is saying this in wrath. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So again, immediate context. How does God respond to the nations in David's day? He's established David as the king, and he'll rule through David as king. He'll work through David as king. He'll conquer kingdoms through David as the king. But ultimately, as I pointed pointed out earlier, This is pointing us to Jesus Christ. What, okay, big picture, big picture. What is God's response to the mutiny of humanity? What is God's response to this ridiculous madness of sin and uproar against the God of the universe? Establishing Christ as King of all kings and Lord of all lords. And how did he do that? How, did, how was Christ installed as the king of his people? By laying down his life as a substitute for his people. By rising again for their justification. By going as our, our forerunner into that heavenly kingdom to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it was there that he was installed as king once and for all. God's response to our rebellion is establishing his own son as the king to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Friend, God will have the last laugh, always. We, we tend to lose sleep and we, get, we, we see these online arguments and people attacking the Bible and attacking God and, 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 and mocking and, and, and sneering at the things of God. 
it should break our hearts knowing that they will not, they might have the laugh right now, but they will not have the last laugh. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and he will have the last laugh, and he will have the last word. And I want you to know that in that day, this laughter is not arising out of a cruel heart to see people suffer. The laughter right now is at the ridiculousness of men, but then in that day, we read in Ezekiel, throughout Ezekiel, that he does not take any pleasure in the death and the undoing of the wicked. He doesn't take any pleasure in their destruction. We know that. How do we know that? Because we see our Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem just before his death, weeping over Jerusalem. We see him weeping over their stubbornness, over their rebellion. Our God is infinitely compassionate. He laughs now, but in that day, when justice is executed, we know that that laughter in that day it will not be a childlike laughter. This is a laughter of sovereignty, a laughter of immovability. This is the laughter of the king of the universe being opposed by the dust that he has spoke into existence. We're told that the nations are like the dust on the scales. If the nations of this earth are regarded as dust on the scales, what about the little individuals within those nations? Less than emptiness and nothing, the prophet Isaiah tells us. We read about something very similar in Revelation chapter 6. The kings of the earth one day and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the rocks and the mountains fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand God's response to the madness of man's insurrection and rebellion is the installment of Christ as king of all. And if we're to be saved, we must understand not only the madness of our sin and repent of it, but we must freely acknowledge the sovereign rule of Almighty God. He is king. He is in control. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and our wills are to bow to his will. But thirdly, if we are to be saved, we must understand the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We must understand the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We must understand that Jesus, as a result of his death for sinners, his laying down of his life for his bride, has been exalted to the highest place, the right hand of the majesty on high. And if we have not fled from our sin to take refuge in him, we will face the terrifying outpouring of his wrath. Look at verses 7 through 9. This is the king speaking, the enthroned king. I will tell of the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The kings of Israel were known as God's sons. So whenever a new king arose, that 
inauguration day, he in a sense was becoming God's son that day. Today I have begotten you. Today I have made you king. That's really the heart of what he's saying here. By the way, Hebrews chapter 1 uses this verse to talk about Jesus' incarnation, his earthly birth. We know that he didn't have an actual birth ever in, 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 in eternity past. He always was, always is, always will be. He's eternal. But of his incarnation, we can say there was a point in time when he, the eternal one, was born as a man, born into flesh. That was when God, in a sense, begot him. But this verse, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is also used with reference to his resurrection. Today I have begotten you in, in, in a small sense, not because of sin, but Jesus was born again. Not in, not, in a, not in the way we are born again, but he rose from death. He was given new life. He was raised to life. In that sense, having been installed as the King of kings and Lord of lords, God could say to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I have exalted you. I have established you as king. And notice what he says here. God is saying to the king, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. A lot of people use this to signify that, um, you know, use it as, in a sense of salvation. Ask of me, Jesus, the father says, and I will make the nations your heritage and all the ends of the earth your possession. But notice what he does with them. This is not salvation. Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, I'm installing you as king over all of humanity to be the final judge over all of humanity. Now we know, based on Revelation chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 7, that by his blood he ransomed people from all nations, all tribes, all places of the earth. This is interesting. Verse 9 is very interesting because rod of iron, the word rod is used elsewhere in the book of Psalms as a shepherd's rod, a shepherd's staff. And the words were used um, kind of interchangeably regarding the, the, the kings of Israel. They had a rod, and with that rod, they would use it against their enemies, but it was also a rod to guide the people, to shepherd the people. It was a shepherd's staff in a sense. It's interesting that all of us will know this rod. We will either know it as his sheep who are led along by this rod, this shepherd's staff, brought out of danger by this shepherd's hook, this shepherd's staff, or you will know it on that last day as a rod to dash you to pieces like a potter's vessel. The good news is that Christ has died for us and has guaranteed that we as his people will know this rod as the staff to comfort us. Your rod and your staff, Psalm 23 says, comfort me. We must come to grips with the reality that Christ, through his humiliation, has been exalted to the highest heaven. 
That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The exaltation that we read about here in Psalm 2 is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are my son. Today I have begotten you, resurrected you, installed you, established you as my king. Notice, why is all the sinful plotting of humanity futile and vain? Well, notice what it ultimately results in. The resurrection of Christ. The establishment of of the greater David's eternal dynasty. Here's humanity plotting, plotting, plotting in vain. And what's God's response? Here's my king. My king who will be empowered to forever shepherd my people, but also to judge every last rebel under heaven and usher in a new heavens and a new earth where God will live happily ever after with his people. They will see his face. He will be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How will all of this be established? By God's king. By God's king. Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And friend, if you are found to be resisting him in that day, The language here is terrifying. To be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel, like a clay vessel. Fourthly, if you and I are to be saved, as we come to this last point, we must not only only understand the madness of sin, the sovereignty of God, the exaltation of Jesus, but we must come to grips with and understand the response that God requires of each and every one of us, the response that God requires of each and every one of us, we must understand and produce the response that God requires of us, which is what? Repentance. That means turning from your scheming and turning away from your rage against a good God. You must go from scheming to serving him. You must go from raging against him to rejoicing in him. And you must exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the point of these last verses where we are told to kiss the son, take refuge in the son. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12. We go from the exaltation of Christ now to the initial rebels that the movie opened up with, so to speak. 
Now, therefore, verse 10, O kings, in light of God laughing at you, in light of God mocking your ridiculousness, in light of God responding in righteous wrath by installing his king to rule over you, to govern the universe. Therefore, in light of all of that, he gives five commands, five charges to these kings and consequently five commands for everyone in this room. Number one, be wise. Be wise. It's a call to wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Of all the things that God can tell his enemies, the first thing he says to them is be wise. What is wisdom, friend? Wisdom is applying knowledge, knowing how to apply knowledge. There's a lot of people that have knowledge, but they don't have wisdom because they don't know how to apply that knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge applied. But wisdom, as we read in the Bible, is also realizing the end. Realizing the end. Considering the end of your life. Considering the outcome of your decisions right now. Friend, you should make, be making decisions right now that you will not regret 10,000 years from now. You need to be living in a way that you will not regret 100 years down the road. Wisdom is saying, how do I apply the biblical truth that I've been given into my life, into my decisions, into my heart and my conscience, my choices? But wisdom also says, what is the outcome of my life? What will be the outcome of my ways? Wisdom is considering the end. Wisdom, God calls us to look to the smallest creatures that we can, we can see, right? He calls us to look to the end. Here's the wisdom of God, by the way. He, he, he tells us, human beings, sophisticated, educated. He says, go to the ant. And I want you to observe how the ant in, win in summer stores up all her food so that in the winter, there's plenty of food. He, in other words, the ant prepares for the future. People don't prepare for the future. Conclusion? People are dumber than ants. The madness of sin. Sin makes us, and I use it with respect, stupid. That's the effect of sin upon the mind and the heart. The ant says we need to be prepared for the future. Human beings say, let's just live for right now. Be wise. God in his love is saying to you, be wise, friend. Be wise. Make wise decisions. Make wise choices. He says, be wise, O kings. Command number two, be warned, verse 10. Be warned. In other words, God's threats are not empty threats. God's not like the parent who says, all right, I'm going to count to three, and if you do that, you're going to be grounded. 
and the child does it, and the parent doesn't follow through with the warning. No, friends, every warning that God has ever issued to fallen humanity will be fulfilled. God doesn't threaten people and then go back on his word. If you live this way, he says, you will reap what you sow. If you're out there in your field of sin and you're sowing seeds of selfishness and self-centeredness and practical atheism and seeds of lust and sexual immorality and living for yourself and pleasing yourself, if you sow those seeds, you know what Galatians chapter 5 says, or 6? You who sow to the flesh will reap corruption. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. A life of rebellion against God will blossom into endless punishment. Be warned. Be warned. Understand this is God's grace warning you. It's grace that God even warns us, isn't it? He could just follow through right now with unspeakable wrath and fury. But he warns people for years. He, he, he warns people as they're growing up in a Christian home with Christian parents saying, you will reap what you sow, be wise. You will reap what you sow, be warned. And he endures people for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 50 years. He allows people to live to 90 and 100, warning them, warning them, warning them. And if they do not heed his warning, they will experience his wrath. And by then it will be too late. So be wise, he says, and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Third warning, or third command in verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear. Serve the Lord with fear. The fact that God would extend his mercy to his enemies, that God would call people who are conspiring against his sovereignty that God would look to people who are plotting to overthrow his reign and his rule and say, the opportunity to come and serve me is there. And understand this. God does not call people to serve him because he needs to be served. We're told in the Bible that God is actually not served by human hands. One, God doesn't need us or need anything. A.W. Tozer said that need is a creature word. We need, you need, I need. God doesn't have needs. So the command to serve the Lord is to enter into the joyful fellowship of communion with God. The call to serve the Lord is, to, is, is a call to a purposeful, meaningful life. The call to serve him, to obey him, to walk with him, to worship him, is a call to do what you were created to do. Serve the Lord with, notice, fear. Reverence. Utmost respect. Fear. What is this all about? Serve the Lord with fear. I thought we're, we're supposed to serve the Lord with joyful hearts. We are. But we're also called to serve him 
knowing that we should be in hell right now, and yet he allows us to serve him? He allows us to walk with him? He allows us to learn about him? He allows us to serve him and tell others about him? This is completely undeserved. We live, we breathe, we move in a realm of unworthiness. Everything we do, we don't deserve. We don't deserve to wake up in the morning. We don't deserve to look out the window and see that the sun came up and that, we're, that God's mercies are new every morning. We don't, get, we don't deserve that. When, when, when we wake up in the morning and we take that, that, that first breath, we don't deserve that. That's God's breath given to us. Not guaranteed to us, but given to us. Serve the Lord with fear knowing that we should be suffering before the Lord in wrath. Serve the Lord with fear. Command number four is at the end of verse 11. And rejoice with trembling. Again, God is not giving these commands, these five final charges, to righteous people. He's giving them to people who have been plotting and wanting to be free from his reign. He says, be wise Be warned, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Again, very similar to the last one. Be joyful knowing that you should be in hell right now. Rejoice with trembling. And lastly, verse 12, it's the title of this sermon, Kiss the Son. This is interesting. Again, this kind of takes us back to the very first king of Israel, Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, we see Samuel anointing Saul with oil, and then what? Kissing him. The king would be anointed and then kissed by his people who would pledge their loyalty to him. Kissing the son is a sign of your loyalty. Kissing the sun is a sign of your allegiance. Kissing the sun in a, in a big Bible picture, big picture, right? Kissing the sun is devoting your life and your all to Jesus Christ. The same way a subject would kiss the ring of a king or kiss the feet of a ruler, we are called by repentance and by faith and by worship to kiss the Lord Jesus Christ. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 1 ends with the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2 ends that telling us here that if you do not submit yourself to the rule and the supremacy and the sovereignty of God's installed King, Jesus Christ, you too will perish like chaff in the wind. You will perish. You will experience an eternal undoing. You will perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. This does not mean that the Lord Jesus Christ is quick to anger. 
the translation signifies, the word signifies it, is when, when, he, when he determines to pour out his wrath, there's no turning back. And we find that throughout the Old Testament. As soon as God enters into punishment with a people, there's no turning him back. His wrath, when it arises, it kindles quickly. It consumes quickly. We know that it's not a wrath right now that if you make the wrong decision, he's going to flare up and, you know, start kicking things over in heaven. No, he is seated, firm, established, confident, joyful, executing his will on earth as it is in heaven. But in that day when his wrath is kindled against you, it will consume you and consume you forever. And notice how the, the verse ends. Blessed. It's exactly how Psalm 1 starts. These are the two gatekeepers into the book of Psalms. Blessed. That is fortunate. Supremely happy. Favored are all who take refuge in him. This is amazing grace. This psalm is filled with amazing grace, astonishing mercy. It begins with people in rebellion against the God of heaven, desiring to be free from serving him. And in the very end, this same God is inviting them into himself to take refuge. We have no idea. We cannot fathom just how merciful God really is. We have pictures of him. Some of you lean more towards the wrath spectrum. You talk more about his wrath. Others lean on this other end and you, 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 you talk about his mercy and his grace. And I guarantee you that even those on this far end of the spectrum truly do not know right now how gracious he actually is. God calls his enemies then and now, there and here, hearing my voice to come in and take refuge, find shelter, go into hiding, where? In his son. In his son. The idea is something to shelter you from a storm to shelter you from the beating heat of the midday sun. Travelers seek refuge. People on a stormy sea seek refuge. Friend, our refuge is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are hidden in him. We are tucked away safely in him. He is like our ark of safety. When the floods of God's wrath pour down, on the last day. That wrath, that judgment will not come down upon our heads because it came down on Christ's 2,000 years ago. And because now we are hidden in him. He is our ark. When the floodgates of wrath open up to devour and undo everything in this creative, created order, there will the church be. There will the bride of Christ be, safely tucked away in his heart, safely tucked away in his grace, safely tucked away in his sacrifice. Kiss the sun. 
pledge your loyalty and allegiance to the Son. Lay hold of the Son. Lay down your arms and lay down yourself before Him. And you will find blessedness, sweetness, favor, happiness. That's the word blessed here. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Repentance is turning from your scheming, turning from your plotting, turning from your vain attempts to be free from God, to serve the Lord with fear, with soberness, realizing that serving Him is the highest privilege granted to humanity. Repentance goes from you raging against God to rejoicing in God and His free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Be wise. How can you be wise? The Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Believe upon him, trust him, kiss him. Bow all that you have and all that you are before him.